when I thought about what we would do over the next couple of weeks now that we're done with First uh, Thessalonians, not done with it like never read it again, but we just come out of that sermon series. Um, I thought, you know, what about a few of the attributes of God, attributes of God that go unnoticed or sometimes flat out rejected? Uh, an attribute of God is something that describes what God is like. It's an aspect of His character, uh, what God is like. And oftentimes we fashion God in our own image. We, we create a God that we like, and then we ignore the things that Scripture talks about that maybe rubs us the wrong way. And some of these attributes, when you see them in another human being, they're completely loathsome. Some of these attributes, when another human is like that, even though God is like that, but when another human is like that, it's just ugly. We hate it. These are the people we stay away from. You think of someone who is, uh, that you might call a, a chronic attention seeker. If you know someone who is a chronic attention seeker, that's probably not your favorite thing about them. They're constantly showing you photos of themselves. 99.9% of their pictures on Facebook are shots of them in the bathroom, shots of them on a ride, shots of them at McDonald's. And no one's taking the shot for them. It's called a selfie. And I think a couple generations ago, if you try to explain to our grandparents what a selfie was, they'd they'd be like, "Why why not just ask someone else to take it? No, it's cooler if you do it yourself. You can even buy a long stick, you know? If you're friends with someone who is always about them, all the conversations always go back to them. They'll let you talk about you for a while, but then they'll just find a way to weave what your story is into how they did it better and how they've been there before. Oh, you didn't go to this part? You should have gone to this part. That's where I was, and then the rest of the conversation is about their trip, even though you just came back from your trip. These are attention seekers. These are people that you might call uh, self-centered uh, they're about themselves, ultimately. They might be nice. They might do things for you. But the conversations, the friendship, the relationship, it's always going to be ultimately about them. These are not our favorite people. These are not our favorite friends. But this is how God is. God is a pure attention seeker. God has as his ultimate goal, his ultimate aim, is his own glory. And when we fail to recognize this, we fail to worship him appropriately. And when we fail to worship him appropriately, we're not really worshiping him, are we? We're worshiping our thought of him. We're worshiping an idol that we've drafted up in our minds that kind of looks like bits and pieces of Yahweh, but is not really the Yahweh revealed in Scripture. God is centered on Himself, and to get with Him, you need to be centered on Him too. All conversations with God are ultimately going to lead back to how great He is. All conversations with God are not going to end with how great we are, it's going to end with how great He is. And that can be disconcerting for some of us, that can rub some of us the wrong way but it's what Scripture clearly teaches. To do that, to see that, we're going to go to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we were passing some out. We can get you one if you slip your hand up, or you can 
pull it up on your phone or tablet, share it with someone next to you. Psalm 96. Now, some of you are thinking, huh, wait a minute. As soon as you start reading some of these verses, you're going to think, we were here a few weeks ago. You were there a few weeks ago when Mark Hochfelner preached from Psalm 96. Okay? But this is the real sermon on Psalm 96. No, don't tell him. Don't tell him. Mark's, Mark's not here. Mark did an excellent job with Psalm 96. Uh, but as you know, with Scripture, it is so layered. It is so uh, profound that you can look at it from one perspective. Mark really hit on the aspect of singing and proclaiming. And what does it mean that we sing to God? What I want to look at this morning is how Psalm 96 turns our attention to why we sing. We sing because God wants it. Now, some of us, when we're at our birthday parties, you know, and everybody starts, happy birthday. Now, most of us, we're just kind of like, you know, everyone's singing at me, you know. Sometimes you'll find someone that's like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, bring it up in the back, yes, say my name right, everybody, you know. That's a little bit self-centered. But that's, that's God. He's going, trees, forests, animals, people, nations, everyone, sing, sing my name. It's me, me, me. That's God. So let's look at Psalm 96 to see that. Psalm 96. We'll read the whole thing and then we'll back up and, and look at some of these pieces. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. One thing you might notice off the bat is some of these words that are repeated. One of the words that's repeated is the word glory. You see that in verse 3. What are we supposed to declare when we sing? What should Christian worship songs be about? God's glory. Declare His glory. Now, some churches will say, worship songs shouldn't have I or me in it at all. I love you, Lord. Here's my heart. Because that's so self-centered. Well, that's too far. You read the Psalms and, and... David says, I, me, a lot. So it's a little too simplistic to say, let's eliminate worship songs that have the word I or have the word me. But we should eliminate the songs that are ultimately about I and ultimately about me. Because our songs are supposed to declare his glory, not my glory. 
If the whole point of the song is how awesomely I'm going to behave, how greatly I am, at, how great I am at worshiping, how great I am at living for you, God, aren't I great? That's, that's terrible. That's not a worship. That's a self-worship song. But our songs are to declare His glory. We see that again in verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe what to the Lord? Glory and strength. We see it again in verse 8. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Now, sometimes we think, well, we don't really understand the word glory. It's such a deep theological word. Well, kind of, kind of, but we understand what glory is when an athlete is admitted to the Hall of Fame and he gets a, I don't know what he gets, a plaque, you know, and he's into the Hall of Fame or just outside the stadium you see a big bronze statue of the hockey player diving or the basketball player dunking. And that, that's glory, isn't it? The glory of this person's Record and performance, athletic performance is glory. Glory is attention. Glory is fame and worth being recognized. That's a little deeper and broader than that, but that's essentially what glory is. And this psalm is saying we need to surrender all glory to God. He gets all the credit. He gets all the attention. And our songs are supposed to declare that. Our lives are supposed to declare that. That He is glorious. So God wants glory. If I wanted glory, you'd just call me a jerk. But God wants glory, and it's right. And it's good that he wants glory. How does he secure glory? How does he get glory? How does he procure it for himself? Through worship. So verses 1 to 3, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, declare his glory. And then verses 7 through 9, ascribe to the Lord. That's kind of a trickier word. To ascribe something is to say, this, that belongs to him. This, that's his. Strength is his. Beauty, real beauty, you can paint whatever you paint. You can come up with whatever song. You can be a great musician, a great artist, and it sounds beautiful, but it's never in comparison to the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of God who ultimately gave you the gift to be creative. He is beauty. He is splendor. And he ascribed to him the glory due his name. Verse 8, he ascribed to him Worship, verse 9. He also declared, procures worship and glory by our proclaiming his rule to the world. Look at verse 10. Say to the nations. Now he's like, go outside of these doors and go say it. Don't just hang out in the sanctuary and say it. Go out there and say it to people who don't know it yet. Right? Declare, verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And so, Worship is how God secures glory for himself, and worship is about himself. Worship is about him and what he is, what he's like, what he has done, and what he does. And if this isn't enough, not only does God demand worship, but he judges those who refuse to give it. He's not saying, hey, worship me. And for people that decide, you know what, I'm not going to worship you, he's like, all right, you know, whatever. I think I'm worth it, but if you don't think I'm worth it, we can just part ways. No, I'm worth it, and if you don't think I'm worth it, you're evil. If you don't think I'm worth glory, if you don't think I'm worth worship, you're a rebel. And you will be judged. That's how seriously God takes his glory. How do, where do we see that? Well... You look at verse 10. 
says, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. It's going to be fair. But we know what he's judging. He's judging how well people did verses 1 through 9. Then it says again in verse 13, the Lord comes, he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. He's not an unfair judge. He's not a judge that gets up crabby in the morning and gives a, you know, his decision. It's fair, it's righteous, it's faithful, but it's a judgment nonetheless. He's not going to take a sort of nonchalant, just let it go, let it pass position with non-worshippers. He demands worship to the degree that he'll judge those who refuse to worship him. I find that interesting when I was studying on the psalm, I have a commentary at home that I plucked off my shelf, and when I turn to the chapter, this author, Beth Tanner, she's commentating on on this psalm, and right at the top, she provides her own title for the psalm, and her old title for the psalm is, God will judge us, let's celebrate. <laughs> we don't like the judge theme, but this is, look at this, this is saying, he's going to judge us, sing, sing to him, he's awesome, he's beautiful, he's going to judge us, you know, that's weird, we don't want to be judged, we don't like that. What is the, mo- the common thing we say when someone that is a friend of ours is judgy, you're so judgy. We don't like that in someone. Well, maybe it's because we think people are unfair or they're not faithful or they're not faithful to their own judgments. You know, they're judging you, but did they do it well? Are they not remembering the last time they failed? But God doesn't fail. He's faithful, and so he has the right to judge. And he does. And we can celebrate that he judges rightly, and he doesn't judge like some other gods of other religions. But he's right, and he's true, and he's faithful. But what is he judging? He's judging whether someone has worshipped him, given him glory, declared his glory, and lived a life that's proof of it. Now, when we, when we loathe someone who's centered on themselves, it's typically because of one or two reasons. Okay? When someone that, we're, that we know is centered on themselves, or we'd call them self-centered, it's we hate that because either A, they are thinking they're the center of things when they're not. They, 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 they want to intrude on everyone else's party. Everyone else's party somehow is going to be, they've got to try to grab the attention and be, make it about themselves. All the conversations have to be about themselves when every conversation shouldn't be about you, man. You're not the center of the world. The world doesn't revolve around you, we'll say, Right? But where that makes it an ugly attribute in someone else, with God, it's a beautiful attribute because we can't say those things. With God, you can't say, the world doesn't revolve around you, God. Yes, it does. Actually, the whole universe revolves around me. You know why? Because I made it that way. Right? When we find that a loathsome attribute in someone else, it's because they think they're the center when they're not. But this psalm is saying, hey guys, God is the center. And if God is the center, then he should receive all the glory for being the center. It's not a God who thinks he's the center when he's not. He's a God who is the actual center. You either recognize it or you don't. So we see that in verses 4 to 6. 1 to 3 is telling us to sing, and then 4 to 6 tells us why. Why should we sing? 
Why should we sing? Why should we give him glory? Verse 4, because he's great. Great is the Lord. And so his praise should be done greatly. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. You remember when he rescued Israel out of Egypt? God could have just dropped the hammer and pulled him out. But he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Have you ever wondered why God would do that? Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? There are other texts that tell us Pharaoh's heart was already hard. But the, God had a role in hardening Pharaoh's heart. But it tells us so that Pharaoh wouldn't just be like, oh, okay, Pharaoh's too wimpy. He needed to be hardened so that he'd ex- experience all ten plagues. And the reason why God wanted to send the ten plagues and not just one plague or two plagues is he wanted to knock down all their gods. You know, Ra, the sun god, well, I just made him disappear. En- enjoy your darkness. Where's your god? Where's your god? Are you praying to Ra? Because he's gone. I just wiped him out. That big ball in the sky that provided light, gone. The Nile River, you say, is the, the blood vein of, of Egypt? Do you like blood? Here you go. It's blood. Ask the Nile gods to provide you water now. What do you worship? You put frogs on your little pottery? You like frogs? You worship the, the, the god of frogs? How about I rain frogs on top of you? God is a competitive God. He doesn't want to share glory. He doesn't want people to think that something he created, like a river or a sun or a frog, has anything on him. He is over all these things, and he will not tolerate competition. And so this psalm is saying he's above all those gods. All gods. He's above them. They're worthless idols anyway, verse 5. Why? He's the one that made the heavens. When you make an idol, you're making it out of something that God made. Worship the one that made all this stuff. That idol, that piece of wood can't do anything for you. So he wants to demonstrate that he is over all things. And that's why what we're supposed to proclaim to the rest of the world in verse 10 is that he reigns. It's not that we can't talk about his love or can't talk about his goodness and and all that. That's great. But he's saying proclaim that I reign, that I'm God and that I'm coming and I'm coming to judge. And that is a truth that is necessary to understand. So he talks about why we should sing in verses 4 to 6. Verse 8, he says, the glory is due him because of these things. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due his name. It's due. I don't want to enter into a controversy, but the whole hubbub about the kneeling during the flag, right, during the anthem, why do people get so heated about it? Because we think something is due when that song is playing. Something is due because of what that flag represents. And what this psalm is saying is, man, when we're talking about God, glory is due his name. Don't, don't sit out worship. Glory is due him because he's worthy of it. So therefore, if we don't give it to him, we're wrong. Okay? So what this psalm is saying is, here's God, the center of everything, demanding worship, worthy of worship. Worship is due him. You'll be judged if you don't. Because you're deluded, or you're rebellious, or you're disobedient. But he has total reign, verses 10 to 13. The world is established. He's the one that established the world. He was the one that created the world. We saw that in verse 5. 
And then verse 10, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, all that is in the sea, all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. All the trees of the forest sing for joy. All of the earth is his. The trees, the fish, the deer, it's all his. And he judges it because it's his. And so he has the right to judge. And if that bothers us, I think it's because we have an epidemic, especially in American Christianity, pompous, well-to-do Christians. And we have a lower view of God than we should because we have a higher view of ourselves than we should. We have a lower view of God than we should have because we have a higher view of ourselves than we should have. How many cults and strains of Christianity seek to diminish what Christ did on the cross by inflating the things that we can do? Christ's sacrifice for you isn't enough. Say these many prayers to fill up what's lacking. Be good enough. Read the Bible enough. The things that you can do will finish getting you into the door of heaven. Man, you can't do anything. Isn't it what Jesus tried to squash in John 15, verse 5? Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's, no, there's nothing you can do apart from me. That means in me, everything you do. You read the Bible? That's great. You love your spouse? That's awesome. You're better with your kids than your dad was with you? Great. You're able to do it because you're in Christ. Because apart from him, you can do nothing. Nothing that's worth worship. Nothing that's worshipful to him. And this was what it's like from the beginning. You remember uh, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve fell, the way in which Satan deceived Eve was by enticing her by saying, God is not who you think he is. God is someone who is in control. He's monopolizing power because he's the only one that recognizes the difference between good and evil. You don't know evil, you only know good. If you bite the fruit, you'll know good and evil and you'll be like God. He'll have to share some of that monopoly. God will be demoted, you'll be promoted. You may not be greater than God, but you'll be like him. Inflate view of self by deflating view of God. That's how sin started, and that's how sin is. Always. So our temptation is to demote God by promoting ourselves, having a lower view of him by having a higher view of ourselves, and it's not true. So the first reason why we don't like self-centeredness in another person is because they're not really the center of things, but this psalm is making it clear that God actually is the center of things, and therefore he should be centered on self. What else should God be centered on? He should be centered on the greatest thing in this universe. God should be centered on what is the greatest, most glorious thing in this universe, and it is himself. Therefore, it's wrong for us to be centered on anything else but him, but it would be wrong for him to be centered on anything else but him as well. The other reason why we don't like it when other people are self-centered is because usually when we say someone is self-centered, it means they're centered on themselves at the expense of every, everyone else. 
They'll cut you off. They don't care about how long you've been standing in line. They'll cut you off so that they shave off the time that they need to stand in line. They don't care about everyone else. They just care about themselves. That's, well, that's how we would describe a self-centered person. But God centers on himself, not at the expense of everyone else, but at the expense of himself. We're unable to worship him. We're unable to do what he's calling us to do in this psalm. And I think the psalmist knows it. You'll read in verse, uh, that first stanza there, one through six. He starts off with what we should do. And look how he sneaks in this topic in verse two. Oh, sing to the Lord, verse one, a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. That means we as a people are in need of being rescued and only God can do the rescuing. And even if the psalmist had in his mind land, geographical rescuing, rescuing from oppressors, we can trace those land promises and, and promises to Israel back to Genesis where we know that the reason why God called the people to himself and rescued them from Egypt and all that was to display the gospel. That all of us are in need of rescuing. All of us are in need of choosing. Abraham got chosen. He didn't choose. We need to be plucked out of our mess. And when we're in the chains of slavery, like Israel was in Egypt, we need a Messiah, like Moses. But obviously we need one greater than Moses because it's not about making bricks. You know, it's not about a pharaoh and Egypt and pyramids and that stuff. It's about eternal lostness. And the ultimate salvation that this psalm points to is our inability to worship God. And he doesn't just say, worship me. Oh, can't do it? I'm going to judge you. No, he promises salvation. And I love how the psalm doesn't wait 10 verses to give it to you. Right there in verse 2. Salvation. Salvation. Meaning, whereas your friend that you wish you could not be friends with anymore because they're self-centered, They're self-centered at the cost of everyone else. God is self-centered at the cost of himself because in order to get you to a place where you can worship him, he had to kill his own son. That Messiah would eventually come, live the God-centered life that we couldn't live, then take the death that was our judgment. God can't just be like, you know, the judgment, never mind, I can't be a judge anymore. No, he is a judge, and the judgment has to happen. Otherwise, he's not just. And if he's not just, he's not the great God he is anymore. So justice has to be there. Jesus takes that place for us, takes the judgment, so God doesn't sweep judgment under the carpet. Okay? And you're in a household, and there's something between two of you, and you just spend a little few minutes apart, and you come back and pretend like nothing happened, and that's your mode, you just sweep things under the carpet. That's not justice. That's not handling things. That's not getting things taken care of. That's ignoring things, and it's going to be worse for you in the end. And God can't do it. God doesn't have a celestial carpet where he just sweeps things under. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'll just let it go. I'm big enough to do that. I'm big enough. i just let it go. No, he can't let it go because then he wouldn't be just. But instead of letting it go or sweeping it under the carpet, he takes it and puts it on his son so you wouldn't have to take it. Is that splendor? Is that majesty? Have you, have you ever heard of a judge, a king, that operates toward his people that way. He's centered on himself 
And he finds that what brings him the most glory is to take a people that can't give him glory and bring them to a place where they give him glory. Remember the psalm that tells us man was made a little bit lower than the angels? That's amazing, right? A third of the angels decided, I'm not going to worship you, God. And it's almost like God says, you know what? I'm going to take something that I'm going to make it a little less than you. They're not as smart as you. They're not as physically powerful as you. Uh, they're not, you know, they're not half the, the, the being that you are when I created you. And I'm going to take that weak being and they're going to worship me. And then Satan says, oh, yeah, we're going to trick them. And they must have had a party in hell, right? The first couple. It didn't take a couple generations. The first couple. But I'm going to get them to completely disrespect God, completely rebel uh, by tempting them with a, a, a fruit. A fruit? Not like a cheesecake? A raw piece of fruit hanging on the tree, man. I'm going to make them diss God for a bite of a fruit. And it was successful. But you remember in Ephesians, it tells us that from the foundations of the world, God ordained the cross. So God is five steps ahead of Satan. And he says, not only did I create man a little bit lower than you, but I, man who's lower than you is fallen like the third of the angels were fallen. But I'm going to do something for this fallen man that I didn't do for the fallen angels. I'm going to rescue them and pay for it with Jesus Christ, the eternal word, the eternal logos. Guys, this is incredible. This is the God that we worship. He centered on himself, and it's good that he centered on himself because he decided it would be bring most glory to him to take something so weak, so broken, so failed, and make it into a worshiper. Something that worships itself and make it into someone that worships him. He accomplished that, and that brings him greater glory. So because God is centered on his own glory, and he saw that that would be the most glorious thing to do, save us, verse 2, salvation is how he secures glory for himself. We are beneficiaries of that, guys. So he is different from anything we could substitute him with. Verses 4 to 6 talk about those gods, the things that we try to substitute for God. This is what he's saving us from, guys, our constant substitution of him. We don't want a a God that's centered on himself. We want a God that's centered on us. You know, that's why it's discouraging when you go to the bookstore and you go to the Christian section and half the books there seem like they're all just about how great you are. If you just tap into your own awesome potential, you'll just live a really great life. When the Bible says you don't have awesome potential, you're terrible. (laughs) You fail. You're created in his image, but we're not in that pristine state, are we? We're a broken image. We're a marred image, and we care more about our own image than his. And so because of that, he has to rescue. He doesn't have to rescue. He chooses to, and that brings him more glory. I can't imagine uh, a more beautiful message than that. And that first chunk, when it talks about splendor, and majesty, strength, and beauty. I can't imagine a stronger God than a God that would take the suffering that I should have had and takes it upon himself. When the cause of the suffering, the reason why I need to suffer is because I rebelled against him. It's not a third party. I rebelled against a third party and then he's going to step in for that third party. I hurt him 
and then deserve punishment, and then he takes it. This is something that does not get old. And we talk about the gospel, this is something that we don't graduate from, but oftentimes we lose it and forget it. When someone asks you about your faith, is this what you communicate to them? Or do you communicate to them that God loves you, created you, you're beautiful, you just don't realize how beautiful you are, you are so awesome, and all you need is a little boost, all you need is a little help, you know, all you need is a little community of other people that are awesome. Jesus loves you. Let's pray. That wasn't the gospel. The gospel is that God is at the center of all things. You don't want him at the center. That's your problem. You don't want him at the center of your marriage. That's the problem of your marriage. The problem of your marriage is not you need seven steps. I mean, those things can help, but not if God's not at the center. God should be at the center of how you raise your kids. Do your kids know that God is at the center? Or do your kids think, if they were quizzed, would your kids think your career is at the center? Your relationship or your marriage is at the center. Your family name and what other people think of the family, that's at the center. Oh, they know beyond the shadow of doubt, man, God is at the center. God is at the center of this house. God is at the center of this family. God is at the center of this church. It breaks my heart when churches all over the place are pandering to people's uh, big ideas about themselves. You know? And it's so easy to fill seats with that. <laughs> the goal isn't to fill seats. The goal is to fill the sanctuary with the glory of God. And God will not tolerate competition. God will not tolerate a diluting of the glory that's due His name, verse 8. It's due His name. That's what God wants. And if you're a true believer, it's what you want. That is what you want. God is beautiful. God is majestic. He's magnificent. And if we ever doubt it, if we ever experience anything that makes us think twice about his goodness and his majesty, remember that God has demonstrated his love, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love. He proved it. That salvation from verse 2 has been proven. We know that. So we don't enter circumstances that are tough and go, God, hey, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm, I'm worshiping you, I'm living the Christian life, and you're allowing me to experience this thing, and it's, it's, this is not right. Maybe God is allowing you to experience that because he procures more glory for himself through it. It was more glorious for God that Job worshiped him through pain than it would have been had Job worshipped him through prosperity. That's the point of the book of Job. Paul had a thorn in his flesh. Jesus, please take it. No. No, you need this. So God has purpose in suffering, whether we see the purpose or understand the purpose or not. But if suffering knocks you off the block, then you might not have been on the right block in the first place. Because my life is not about me. It's about God and God accomplishing his own purposes. I need to come to grips with that to worship rightly. I need to come to grips with that to raise my kids rightly, right? To evangelize rightly, to proclaim, verse 10, proclaim that to others. We're proclaiming his reign. He's not a genie in a bottle. Hey, having a tough life, rub God the genie a few times, you know, tithe, you know, uh, 
put a big fat study Bible in the, in the foyer of your house so when people walk in they see you're a Christian. You know, things like that that God likes. It really tickles him and he likes that. You know, just buddy up with him and he'll make things all right for you. He reigns. He's not a genie. He's not a wish granter. He's sovereign and he's king. We'll be talking about that more next week. So my hope, guys, is uh, this would radically continue to change how we talk to people about God, how we worship, how we go through life experiencing things. You know, high schoolers, I'm hoping you get that sooner rather than later. Life is not about you. Life is not about me. It's about God. And we don't want to wait to get that. We need to get that. We need to get that now. I want to ask the worship team to come up. And as we close in a song, my hope is that we can worship him, worship him about his strength, worship him about his beauty, with him at the center, and not anything about what we can get out of it, but to purely worship him for who he is. Amen? All right, let's stand and worship.